Thank you all for joining us. Um, To introduce tonight's talk, I'm uh, Rob Bowman. I'm the director of program, Arnolfini. And we're delighted to have with us tonight um, Lawrence Leck and Stephen Bode, um, who are joining us to um, talk specifically about Lawrence's work, um, but in the context of the screening of two films that were selected and commissioned through the Jerwood Film and Video Umbrella Awards um, for um, 20... I can't remember which year we're in now. 2017. 2017. Um, And um, as you may know, that the um, selection of the awards is uh, always uh, um, made within the... um, framework of a a loose theme um, to which artists are invited to respond and the theme for uh, this award was neither one thing nor another so (coughs) hopefully as will become clear um, through the uh, screening of the films you'll see that there is um, some relationship between the two works um, and this exploration of um, the alternative spaces of reality and fiction that they talk about. I'm not going to try and say too much more about the work itself. Um, Maybe I'll let Stephen say something specifically about them. And after we've shown the two works, and Patrick's will be shown first, and then Lawrence's afterward, there'll be a um, a Q&A, a Q&A with uh, Lawrence and Stephen, and an opportunity to ask some questions as well. Did you want to say anything else, Stephen? Thanks. Um, Is this microphone actually working? Oh, it is. It is. That's good. Um, um, Thank you, Rob. Uh, I just. uh, few introductory remarks. Um, we have two films to show, one by Patrick Hock, um, as, as And If in a Thousand Years, and uh, Geomancer by Lawrence Leck. They're both commissioned for the Jerwood FE Awards, as Robert said. We chose these two pieces from 250 applications last year in an open call around a theme, neither one thing or another, which seemed to speak to ideas of hybridity, indeterminacy, undecidability in an incredibly complex world in which it was really hard to tell one thing from another. Um, In an era of fake news, it can be difficult to distinguish um, the provenance of one thing. So this idea of indeterminacy or hybridity, I think, is very uh, clearly visible in both pieces. and will form a recurring motif, I think, in the conversation that Lawrence and I have about his film Geomancer, which is a wonderful, extraordinary narrative speculative fiction about um, an AI and artificial intelligence in the future, um, really bringing into much sharper focus uh, ideas and thoughts about um, the material, the immaterial, um, different forms of reality that we experience through technology and through the moving image. Um, In the theme and in an echo of neither one thing or another, I probably would encourage those of you who are taking a back seat to stay where you are at the moment to appreciate the films in all their cinematic uh, dimension, but that maybe um, as tonight's uh, discussion starts to take place to encourage you to move forward a little bit so that we can um, join in a bit of a conversation after the two films have shown. Patrick's is a bit shorter, it's about 17 minutes long, Uh, we'll show that first and then we'll show Geomancer and then after that Lawrence and I will um, have... A, uh, a brief conversation which we hope to open up to you as quickly as possible. So thank you again, Rob, for inviting us. Um, and uh, let's play the first film. Hi. So um, if any of you want to move forward, that's fine. But I, I can um, carry on as normal. Um, Um, As I mentioned at the beginning, two films which in their different ways combine um, 
the real, the fantastical, the material, the immaterial, the futuristic, and the classical, and that consider um, themes like authenticity, originality, simulation at a moment where I think we probably all agree that um, binaries and categories are becoming increasingly blurred or entangled in a world where it's sometimes hard to tell one thing from another. Um, what I want to do a little bit is, now we have Lawrence here, to really have a conversation about Geomancer. I'm very happy in questions af afterwards to field any inquiries or supply any additional context to Patrick's film, which um, is also rich and full of ideas. Um, I'm sure you can see some similarities and why the pieces complement each other so well. But I want to start a conversation with Lawrence, um, which is with the observation really that um, when uh, people are often creating um, speculative fiction, science fiction set in the future, often what they are doing is giving expression in some way to preoccupations and anxieties in the contemporary moment. And one of those things I think in your film might well be about the ascendancy, perhaps sometimes the troubling ascendancy of machines, um, which we already know and feel are um, getting um, the upper hand on us and proving better than us in terms of things like calculation and aggregation of information and may also be, we fear, perhaps, um, starting to challenge us in those kind of citadels, those core quintessential parts of the human spirit which are about creativity, the, those kind of human qualities that we hold dear and we think are unique in some way. So um, in your opening scene in the film, there is, I think, a very emblematic moment where a champion at the game of Go is bested most of the time by a, um, uh, an AI, uh, a player of that game. But in a wonderfully romantic moment, comes up with a move which seems to exemplify all of those kind of maverick, um, uh, intuitive or counterintuitive ways of um, maybe not defeating logic, but showing a different way of doing things, which seems to be fundamentally human. And um, I want you to talk a little bit about that game, that moment. It radiates out throughout the film a little bit as well and why that's so important in terms of the narrative. Uh, sure. Um, so to address firstly the idea that uh, science fiction or the future is always talking about the present, I think, I think science, I think the growth of science fiction or kind of technology-related art is it's really um, developed hand-in-hand hand with the psychological perception of technology as a threat, basically, either as a, either as threat to livelihood or job specializations, which you know goes goes back all the way, um, I guess, to let's say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I think was basically about that's about the more bodied horror of feeling like technology can create a body that is in some ways superior to a human one. And so fast forward nearly exactly 200 years and, and the go scene, uh, which actually I kind of recast last year's match into, into the future. But um, like I, I say in the film, for a long time, uh, computer scientists didn't think that uh, computer opponents could beat masters of this game, but go because it's far more complex even than, uh, than chess. And so what, uh, Lee Sedol did in the single game that he won was that he kind of did this hand of God out of the out of the box kind of move. But then I thought that actually the very act of creating of of performing this genius move 
means that in the future, because of machine learning, it basically ensures that none of those tactical weaknesses will be present anymore. I mean, the thing about AI and why the weaponization of it is always such a threat, it's, it's because it's such a completely inhuman system. It, it doesn't want to win, it wants to not lose, which to us seems like a you know, semantic difference, but statistically, and uh, algorithmic performance is, is all about statistics, statistically that's a very different way of, uh, way of thinking or way of playing. And so what I was thinking when I was writing it is not just the emotional um, and psychological um, impact of having such kind of a, such a mind, um, but also what uh, a threat I think people would think uh, would come out of that. And I think there's a slightly like throwaway phrase in there in the museum scene where I use the word biosuprematist. And so I did. I did also think that it's inevitable, really, that you know you just like you had um, uh, industrialists and, and Luddites 200 years ago, you will have some kind of biosuprematist and some kind of pro-tech lobby groups. Because um, I think inherent in any kind of techno technological progress is some kind of a political, political change, um, as well as commercial investment and uh, psychological hope and anxiety. And so in, in Geomancer, through the framework of this uh, portrait of an artist, I tried to uh, have elements of all of those aspects that I'm interested in. Yeah. We'll, talk, we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. What I think is interesting is, is in the, the emblem of the game is that you're right, of course, once you play a wild card move, it's a card you can't ever play again because people will realize it, assimilate it, and be part of the repertoire or armory of the opponent in future. So it's a very romantic notion that that, um, I think you actually call it the swan song of the genius. It's one that you know you can, you can play it once, but after that, it's gone. And I'll come back to this interesting binary of winning and not losing, which I think is partly, um, going to come up again in a conversation which I might come to quickly now which is, is if one of the fears or anxieties potentially within this particular moment has been about the rise of machines challenging humans at their you know at, uh, in the places where they feel weak at this particular moment there is also a sense in the way that the geopolitical economic axis has shifted about there maybe being a fear or a threat about the ascendancy of the East and um, there is uh, a real um, shift going on there. And I want to talk a little bit or to ask you to talk a little bit about um, a phrase that occurs in the film and something you've talked about more widely which is this thing called Sino-Futurism. We may, looking at that phrase, um, think of it as being like um, the future is Chinese or the, um, the 21st century will be the Chinese century. That's one way of looking at it. But one of the things that I've, I've heard you talk about is that, and which I find really interesting, is that it's also to be seen as Futurism with a Chinese twist. There's a kind of aspect to futurism which may, and I'll let you talk about this more. But one point I'm going to make is is um, is about futurity in the West, or certainly in the recent configurations of the West, has involved upheaval, rupture, modernity, winning. Whereas what you've talked about, I think, really interesting, and I want you to talk about some more, is that ideas of the future in, um, in China or a Chinese cosmology may be much more about continuity than they are about rupture. And I'd just like you to talk a little bit about that because it seems as one of the things I just picked up on about this, this binary between winning and not losing seems to be a little echo there of that more cautious conservative way of thinking about the future. Sure. Um, I, th 
Well, so Sign of Futurism, which is in the museum scene as well, is, is actually an extract of an um, hour-long video essay I did while actually researching and writing the script for Geomancer. I basically, real, from a personal point of view, I kind of realized that all the, um, all the developments and fears around AI and automation, all of the fears and hopes around that exactly paralleled all the hopes and fears around the kind of um, modernization of China, basically. Um, and as someone who is um, Malaysian Chinese, but grew up mostly in London, but knows the culture very well, I also wanted to extract the idea of Asian futurism or Sino-futurism. I, I kind of wanted to extract that from discussions that have already been well, um, well made about uh, Italian futurism, Gulf futurism, and Afrofuturism. So I thought, what's the difference between these, uh, the fantasies of each of those? Because the fantasy of Italian futurism was war and machines. Um, of Gulf futurism, it's more reclaiming the right to celebrate, um, celebrate otherness or celebrate kind of a, a certain, a, a different center of the world. And with Afrofuturism, it's, to generalize, it's really about kind of overcoming the master-slave dynamic of you know, slavery and, and that lack of power and lack of ownership of the body. So in Afrofuturism, um, in, in um, my reading of it and what I've um, had in discussions with Steve Goodman is that the, the symbol of the robot is important for the Afrofuturists because it allows them to reclaim ownership of their bodies. Rather than appealing to uh, humanitarian reasons of be g respect us now because you disrespected us in the past, instead they kind of leapfrog that, um, that moralizing value judgment into saying, actually, if you treat us inhumanly, we will actually embrace that and become twice as inhuman and therefore superhuman. Um, so by that inversion of the that master-slave dynamic, they subconsciously or consciously kind of wanted to overcome that. Um, and hence, many uh, kind of sometimes naive, sometimes very knowing um, embrace of uh, science fiction or space travel in, in these things with Afrofuturism. In Gulf Futurism, I think the, the dialogue was much more, uh, I guess, contemporary in the sense that dating back from uh, Edward Said until, you know, Iran-Iraq war, Gulf wars, and the split of uh, the Middle East and the um, Arab-Israeli wars. The Gulf futurist perspective is more um, reclaiming ownership of just a different geopolitical center, where the Middle East, it's not the Middle East, it's the center of a different kind of perspective. And economic success brought on by the oil industry is actually something to be proud of essentially or to embrace and the commercial uh, commercial impact of uh, the world oil trade is actually something to be foregrounded as then aesthetic. So for me with Sinofuturism, I thought what if you took all of these uh, Fox News kind of cliches about China, um, overworking, uh, underpaid, overworked, highly competitive workforce that will work for nothing and build your phones for free. What if I took all these really well-worn cliches that are, that are present in both the kind of Fox News fear of China taking jobs, and they're also present in the moralizing Guardian kind of rep reporting of Foxconn employees dying to make Apple products and, and these kind of things. So I was interested in taking the AI as the equivalent of this inhuman will to survival, not will to power, but will to survival as the kind of emblematic symbol of Sinofuturism. Because in my um, analysis as well, the, um, the continuation of Chinese culture is less to do with winning, it's more to do with not losing. It's less to do with uh, prosperity as a fantasy, but the baseline is survival. And with that in mind, you can actually see all of these traits of Chinese labor and industrialization and even political repression with the view that the government might say, and it's a very um, contentious argument, that better 1,000 die so that a million can live. You know, This is the kind of statistical reading 
of population that has actually been present in China for since it's been a civilization, since it's been a quantified um, state somehow. So that's the that's more the um, uh, critical theory side of Sinofuturism and the, the the personal side as well. Um, as for the for the geopolitical side of it, I mean, I don't think this idea of the Chinese century, which is you know. Britain in the 19th, America in the 20th, China in the 21st, and this, you know, this um, linear timeline of he hegemonic power in the world. I don't. It's is, too neat, isn't it? Yeah. It's too neat, of, of course, and it's very much a, um, a kind of Western humanist, um, orderly conception of the the world, as if things are that uh, simple. So for me, with Sinofuturism, it's more just opening up a parallel kind of inquiry, and it's not a manifesto in the same way that Italian futurism had a manifesto because it was more, uh, let's say, a weaponized uh, kind of movement. It's more, um, I've tried to call it a conspiracy theory before, but it's not that either. It's more just, it's, it's a speculative uh, kind of framework. Um, I think it's interesting also in some of the things we talked about, about hybridity as well because I think this notion of of progress um, being uh, echoed or shadowed in some ways with ideas of um, not exactly stasis but of, of kind of continuity at, this, at the same time there is always talk about um, the Chinese version of Capitalism being, in a sense, another hybrid. It's a it's a controlled state um, capitalism in it's in in a way which is both quite uh, rampant, but um, but also quite um, quite controlled. And I find uh, so. I'm going to segue a little bit now into from that into. Singapore and its emblematic um, presence in the film, um, both for you personally, but also I think as a city memorably described by William Gibson as uh, Disneyland with a death penalty, a place which is both incredibly ordered but incredibly free market in its aspirations, regulated but deregulated to extremes. Um, you've set the film in the future in Singapore and you describe it as a city which has become a simulation of itself is it? and I want you to talk a little bit more about what you mean by that in terms of both its because it seems to touch upon some ideas in the film not just about um, gambling and culture which are in there's a lovely phrase that you use there about proximity alert, and it seems to me a, a wonderful juxtaposition in Singapore about museums, casinos, mm. um, uh, the appreciation of culture and the, the gambling instincts side by side. Um, but it also seems emblematic of so many things in which this idea of originality on the one hand and a kind of you know, inherent emulation, counterfeiting, copying, whatever you want to call it, mm. coexist. So if you talk a little bit about Singapore as a as a as an emblem of that coexistence perhaps. Sure. Um just to briefly kind of think about um the idea I mean the idea of uh technology and, 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 and revolution, or the idea that China has capitalism with Chinese characteristics. To me, um, to me because every, every subsequent country that tries to modernize or industrialize learns from lessons of the past, for example, and that's why um, American industrialization moved faster than British industrialization, that's why Japanese industrialization moves faster than American and Korea, than Japan, et cetera, et cetera. But I think with the kind of Chinese highly educated like technocrats who are in, in power now, it, it's very different because the 
fantasies of um, so basically the fantasies of socialism were obviously quite heavily discredited in uh, the 20th century and whether that's an uh, intellectual or political truth is up for debate um, but it's quite safe to say that things are very interpreted in very different ways so for example in in China left wing left wing doesn't mean socialist and right wing doesn't mean kind of capitalist actually in China left wing more means authoritarian states so they would count um, uh, a strong centralized government so for example um, Trump is left wing the Chinese government is also left wing but the people who are on the right wing are more um, kind of for uh, individual right human rights and, and, and so on and like individuality and basically people who are against the notion of a strong centralized state um, and but of course this left and right thing is is very different if you kind of look at things literally from the other side of the circle or the other side of the mirror um, the so the emergence of Singapore in 1965 it, it uh, was part of Malaya that was independent from the UK in, in 1958 but it emerged at a point and the reason for it being over designed and hyper liberal and hyper kind of um, paranoid in a way is because the the climate when the country emerged was in the midst of uh, wars in you know uh, right in the middle of the Vietnam War for example threats in Laos and uh, Cambodia lots of military coups in Thailand so the need for stability was obviously the central thing and the anxiety of the nation at that point in its early in its early history was was quite palpable because for example if the UK uh, if UK and Australia and New Zealand pulled out their military at the same time, it, was, it would literally be uh, completely defenseless. And it's hard to Im imagine seeing now all the prosperity and the skyscrapers and the new civic infrastructure and the casinos and the HSBC headquarters. It's hard to remember that in, in barely a generation, it went from, I mean, there was literally a book called From Third World to First. So of course this attracts a lot of fascination from, uh, from free market capitalist theorists who see it as this like dream place where tabula rasa kind of capitalist development can be very successful and at the same time a lot of criticism for it being less than perfect in human rights, civil liberties, single party state and, and, and so on. For me, I'm conscious of the politics of it but I'm most interested artistically in the parallels between a geomancer or any individual and the search for independence and individuality in, in, in any kind of arena where it's quite crowded basically and things are in cr close proximity. So in that kind of environment, you know, the culture is artificial. Um, the idea of individuality, it's Artificial. The idea of a clean, green Singapore and nationhood again—it's—it's it's, uh, artificial. So, the for me, these really parallel the kind of like thoughts that, you know, to be honest, like just go through a teenager's head. You know, that was the framework I was thinking for what an AI that was super intelligent but kind of alone and like didn't feel like it belonged in a certain place. Like, how would it feel if it kind of went back home and felt that that wasn't its home, really? And of course, if you zoom out, that's how Singapore feels about its presence as a majority Chinese state in a predominantly kind of um, quite secular but Muslim uh, geopolitical archipelago. Um, and it's interesting for me to realize that there is a lot of close links between the foundation of the uh, of Israel and and Singapore. I mean, both kind of uh, British decisions, but in in fact that they feel that they are like a kind of um, you know like a lone entity in a hostile sea kind of thing. And that kind of psychology breeds a certain kind of nationalism and military and and strange kind of pride slash paranoia at the same time. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting, and let's let's kind of maybe switch a bit from geopolitics to psychology because I think one of the interesting things about Geo, the character, is that he's a drone. 
by which I mean he is a bit of technology that is observational and panoptical, but he's also a drone, as in he's a worker bee. He does the he does the dirty work. He does the you know the grunt work, and he wakes, or there is an awakening. Well, let's not call it a singularity, but there is an awakening both within the AI world, but I think within industrialization about people within progress not happy to just do the dirty work anymore, wanting to do better things with their lives and more imaginative, creative things in their lives. And I want you to talk a little bit about his, um, his or her, there's no necessary gender to geo, that awakening, that epiphany, and why an artist, and why then you talk about these things throughout the film, about this, um, again, kind of um, careful consideration within the world of art about how that is policed in terms of how easy it would be for work to be reproduced and simulated? Sure. Um, so, I mean, the choice... Uh, so, the, 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 the idea of simulation, I'm, I'm interested in not just in kind of like literal terms, like using video games to make some kind of rendered environment and then that's a fiction as well. But I'm also interested in simulating, you know, different characters or just imagining myself as a different self. So I've, I thought that if you had, if one had the capacity to see and know and remember everything, there's a certain kind of, how, how would you stop yourself going mad? Right? How would you stop your? How would you be able to process these things? And just on, in a very simple case, there's there's often an argument made about AI. It's like why, why do we feel? Are we anthropomorphizing it too much? You know, are we adding too much personification to this force that doesn't care about anyone or anything? But my my interpretation for certain kinds of AIs, if uh, if they're so inclined, is because they have read all the books, they've watched all the movies, they've listened to all the music ever that's been recorded. They will construct this idea that there is a constant search for meaning and also a, a constant search for meaning in conscious life. And even in lower forms of animal life, there is also this nurture instinct, you know, this generational instinct. And what is that? But at the same time as knowing all of this stuff and reading all the books and knowing all of these emotions, the fact is that it was you know, made in a startup in London or Singapore. So it was very much like it, it was created intentionally with you know, a couple of billion dollars of investment. So it could literally see all the steps that led to it being created as well. So the kind of not just identity crisis, but just things that it would um, be propelled to do, I think, can on one hand be boiled down to just a basic search for creativity and um, creativity and agency. So in the film, there's, a, I think, two or three times when things are offered to Geo and they reply no. Uh, because, I mean, to me, this for the being that has everything, the idea of a d denial as a choice is a very defining characteristic. You know, do you want to be a stockbroker? No. Do you want to live in Singapore? No. Do you want to, you know, do you want to rejoin all your other friends in the cloud? No. It's like I just want to do my own thing. And again, maybe it's learned that from watching loads of cowboy films or something, right? But at the same time, there's probably a truth, a, a, a truth in that somehow. Um, and I feel part of the reason that Guan Yin is there as this, um, as this other voice inside Geo themselves is that part of what would help against the feeling of isolation is the knowledge that there are others like this, uh, like 
you know, with a similar background, basically, and it doesn't matter if you're like a weirdo in a, in a secondary school or something, that I don't think is gonna change for any kind of um, being. Um, this, other, this idea that there's an other, but if you're an isolated other, that, that's problematic. But if you have a kind of group to be part of, or you knew that you were from a group from long ago and you know, you're like the last one, or there's others that you don't know, I think that creates a real kind of comfort. And I feel that when Gio learns that it has, they have been deliberately isolated, of course, that nothing, I don't think, deals with being caged very well. Um, so there are these psychological truths or dramatic truths that I was interested in exploring. Yeah, and I think you explored them very well. And I think it's the, you know, it is that thing that there are others out there that you're really kind of touching upon. That if, um, and it's about the the sort of um, accelerated nature of learned experience these days, where the AI may not feel it, but knows that it should feel it. Mm -hmm. So that little frisson is mm -hmm. worth um, contemplating some more. I'd like to perhaps see if there are any questions at this stage. Um, having extended this notion of empathy uh, more widely, we should feel that there are others out there and we should maybe bring them into the conversation too. Um, so please don't disappoint me by having made that introduction to you all that there is no question. But um, uh, try us out either on Lawrence's film or on Patrick's. I'd love to hear from you. Please. <laughs> Rob, go ahead. Yeah. Um, what you've been saying kind of relates to this, but I'd like to ask if you could say a little bit more about um, the importance of place within your work. Um, it feels to me sometimes that it's an abstraction um, as well as a very concrete and important kind of element within the um, construction of the film. So, sorry, the idea of place. Precisely, yeah. So, I mean, this was, I, I'd previously done more, you know, thing, a site, I was interested in the idea of, can you have a site-specific practice and use video games or new media in an interesting way? So, for me, part of the idea of Singapore, for example, or the idea of what is artificial, um, obviously it exists as a natural landform that is heavily added to and augmented by people, basically, both in the architecture and so on. So I thought that's basically a good setting for talking about artificiality or what constitutes the difference between human originality and machine copying. Um, so on, on one level, on the kind of largest kind of national level, that's what I was interested in. Then there's of course the choice of um, Marina Bay as the location where everything takes place in. So partly I was interested in that because, I mean, the bay itself used to be uh, the sea, basically. So on the, the north side was uh, just the just the beach, and then they kind of enclosed everything that now the casino and the three towers are on. So, as a kind of filmmaker or kind of video game level designer, I was thinking, trying to simplify my life, even though the script is complicated. I thought, okay, we'll start in space. No, we'll start in Singapore. Then we'll go in 20 years later. Then we'll go into space, drop to Singapore, and then climb up the building, basically and at the same time talk about things in the past and things in the future and things in the present. So it was important for me just to have this clear spatial idea of where the, where the camera was going, even if narratively it was kind of evoking things, especially in the museum, that weren't all happening at the same point in time. So zooming in again to the museum, then in the museum you have, again, a model of you know, you get this like Hall of Mirrors thing where you have a model of Singapore and you have a model of the building that later turn out to have been kind of figments of Geo's uh, imagination. So again, in that third level, 
um, the idea of place is no longer, you know, chairs are a certain size and the island is a certain size. It's more that the idea of the place is it's a model that doesn't necessarily correspond to real physical scale. Um, so, and you know, there's the different specific aspects of place as well, or what a place signifies that I was interested in. Um, so, and, and the last thing, the, so the museum to me signify, uh, is, the museum is a place that contains other places, essentially. Whereas the casino, uh, the, and the mall, which was basically closed, is a place where things are for sale, but, but it's closed. And the casino, it's not just a place where you win money, but it's a place where your dreams come true, it's, or, or not, they fall apart, basically. Um, so there's that, and then there's the top of the skyscraper, which is generally signifies a place where you uh, have a view over the city, whether you're on the top of the orbit in near Westfield or Eiffel Tower, you feel like you have this kind of temporary privilege over the world around you. So that's so each different architectural place within the film has those kind of um, uh, implications. I think. Um, on the subject of place, I just want to just mention for you, those of you who may or not may or may not be ask, wanting to ask a question about Patrick Hock's piece, just to give some contract, context about it, that the place that it was shot is um, Guadalupe, a town in the Southern Californian desert where Cecil B. DeMille had filmed his biblical epic, The Ten Commandments, and then when the filming was done, buried uh, for reasons of cost-effectiveness, the set, the multi-form set, including uh, 22 sphinxes and temple architecture of all kind of manners, um, buried it under the sands of the desert, um, only to find, as sand shifts and reassemble, that um, a number of years later, uh, people discovered these strange artifacts coming out of the sand. And they have been reclaimed in a classically American way as part of um, cinema history and have been brought into that hall of fame and into the little museum of the town. So Patrick's film, in a way that we have Lawrence's um, drone figure, Patrick's Sphinx, is brought back to life by being disinterred um, from an archaeological dig and floats disembodiedly in an echo of Lawrence's drone through that landscape um, to, uh, in a sense, rediscover its own history and wonder about its origin and its provenance as a being. Now, um, uh, what's also interesting to me, and I've seen both films obviously a number of times and really hit home again tonight is that there is a similarity also in as much as at the end of Patrick's film we see these sequences of LIDAR scans as if we're seeing through the Sphinx's eyes in a kind of night vision, alien vision uh, perception of its universe and its being or its place in the world. Um, it kind of goes back over its old ground and goes back into the desert where it was disinterred uh, through those LIDAR scenes. There's also a sequence in your film, Lawrence, and I want you to talk about this a little bit more, right? Not quite at the very end, but almost at the end, where there is some odd, to our eyes, kind of processed footage. And I want you to talk a little bit about that because there's a similar recapitulation thing going on there. Sure, so in that um, neural network se generated sequence, it basically took uh, my friend Terence Broad, who's an AI programmer and artist, took the preceding 42 minutes of uh, footage and basically ran it through what's called a neural network autoencoder. What that does is it takes a film and breaks it down into um, 80,000 individual frames and it processes each to see what the kind of patterns of light and dark are within each image. Because of course to a neural network, it doesn't see a cup as a cup, it's a kind of different color with two, with kind of um, certain kind of space, uh, 
geometric characteristics. So in this neural network dream sequence, essentially, what I was interested in doing is saying, okay, if we, if we see if we see real live action footage as live action footage and video game CGI footage as CGI footage, and there's a kind of um, a line where things become photorealistic, uh, there's often a tendency to think of you know realism as something to do with animation or something that basically looks like life to us. What I was interested in is that if different forms of vision emerge, vision that might be based not just on kind of infrared things, but vision based on acoustics or just vision based on a different set of eyes and ears, um, what that might be like. And so the neural network sequence in Geomancer is Geomancer in a way learning to see like itself or learning to see, learning that there's many different ways of seeing. Um, and of course, throughout the film, again, it's ambiguous who is who we as the audience are. Are we all a figment of a dream? Are we playing the game in the VR headset at the end? You know, or what level of control or character are we doing? Are we playing an AI character within the video game, or are we watching an AI's own self-portrait, which describes how it would like to be seen? Um, these the, these aren't fully explained. Um, yes, please go ahead. Yeah, um, well, I, I really enjoyed the film. I'm David Roden, by the way, so thanks for inviting me, Lawrence. Um, I, I, I love the way you, you kind of played with our tendencies. Uh, uh, I think one of you was saying to anthropomorphize AI. So in the sense there was uh, a, a kind of... Um, a sort of dialogue between two agents, in a sense, which we, we, we could understand. But at the same time, um, I, I, I was fascinated by the way that the space we were presented with was not was a was not didn't seem like a space that we could actually physically insert ourselves in, and in the sense view from a kind of human perspective. It seemed to be you were giving us some kind of drone eye perspective which was and I, I, I um, it really um, got me thinking about the, the way really cinema generally is a kind of prosthesis <laughs> um, so I, I've, I've, I've just thought it was an ex extremely rich piece you know and love to see it again sometime <laughs> thanks so much <laughs> Thanks. No, I mean, always, always good to have a request for an encore. I wouldn't mind. Uh, uh, no, no, but <laughs> probably don't have time tonight. But, um, but I wouldn't mind uh, um, another question. Would be good. Um, uh, maybe not. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, it, it, the how um, basically the world of Go is fascinating because, kind of like uh, tennis stars, people people like sometimes parents want their kids to be like Go champions, and then they do this testing, and then when they're six, they go to special Go schools, and then they play for the next twenty years, for example. So the uh, Lee Sedol, for example, is one of the, uh, he's Korean and he's one of these kind of go geniuses. But people obviously do bet on games just like people bet on Brexit or anything, for example. But what's interesting about Go is that the um, the culture that surrounds the this kind of the mystical culture that surrounds this game. So, for example. It used to be heavily promoted for like samurai, for example, in, in feudal Japan to study Go because it would let them know more about the mysteries of you know, strategy and the battlefield and things like this as this analogy for, um, for warfare, uh, just as you know, chess is as, as well. So people bet on it, but the difference between Go and gambling, shall we say, is that Go is an almost impossibly complex game because of all the permutations. 
but it is purely based on skill. The better player will win in the, at the end of the day, and that's why AlphaGo beat the, the human player. Whereas with gambling, it's that element of chance that is so seductive because the compulsive gambler always thinks that today I will be lucky. I've been working so hard and I'm going to blow it all, but I could be, be a millionaire. So the reason I chose gambling as this, it's also in Sinofuturism as this kind of addictive quality. If you, um, if you work so hard, or why, why do um, people love gambling? Right? It's either that they got money from that they feel that they don't deserve and they want to, you know, kind of subconsciously blow it, or they've actually worked incredibly hard for their money and they just want to expand that because they feel they deserve it. So I thought for an AI, what would they fantasize more about other than being human? But what they would fantasize about is to somehow play a game that didn't fully rely on their superhuman intelligence you know they would want to feel that they took a chance and it paid off or, or not and that's the kind of um, compulsion to gamble which I feel is a very uh, it, it, it's a really interesting kind of trait so whereas Go has the skill and it's purely skill gambling is attractive precisely because there's some skill involved in some games roulette obviously none poker a bit more um, but that is really seductive to some minds, basically. I think that's that thing about if, a, if AIs were any good at emulating humans and learning from them, they would understand pretty quickly that we as humans love the things that we are not. So they would probably copy us in wanting to be something which was different from their superior skill sets or the, the you know, the what was in their kind of coded DNA in some way. So it's that love of otherness which I think is 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 fascinating. Um, uh, it's been a really interesting conversation, Lawrence. It's always good to talk to you. It's been lovely here being here in Bristol. I have brought with me some copies of this book which accompanies the show which I'm somewhat disinclined to take back to London with me so if anyone wants I think we almost magically have the same number of copies of the book as people in the audience so um, they're over there if you want to take one back as an election night souvenir of this evening then please Hope do everyone voted. yeah yeah um, that's that's a, that's going to be a gamble in itself so um, let's uh, Wave goodbye to the uh, evening of, or this part of the evening of June the 8th, 2017, and um, let's hope for some good outcomes in the future. So thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, thank you so much, Lawrence. Thank you, Rob, for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you.